Welcome back to another episode of the Root and Rise podcast. I am your host, Brianne, and I am here with a special guest, Amy Green-Smith. This episode is actually the final episode of our series, and we're talking all things boundaries. Whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been following along with the rest of the series, you are in for a treat today. Amy teaches us how to powerfully say no, how to set and enforce boundaries with others, and how to overcome guilt associated with any pushback you might receive. This episode is inspired by you, my listener, and I'm excited to offer more ways for you to get involved with the powerful conversations happening on the Root and Rise podcast. Let your voice be heard in future content through my community survey, or share your story by filling out a speaker application. Click the link in the description for more information. It's the perfect place to ask any questions that may come up as you listen to this podcast, and you could be featured in upcoming episodes. Back to the episode. In the first two parts of the series, we dove into difficult conversations, how to start them, end them, what to say, and how to stand up for yourself, as well as how to overcome imposter syndrome and finally stop people-pleasing. And those themes didn't stop there. In this episode, Amy continues to provide even more strategies for navigating those uncomfortable conversations surrounding boundaries and for overcoming people-pleasing, this time in the form of over-explaining when setting a boundary and holding more of someone else's experience than is actually ours to hold, especially when they get upset over our boundaries. Amy walks us into actually embracing boundaries without the unnecessary justifications. What a relieving thought, right? And you know we cannot talk about boundaries without talking about what happens when someone doesn't respect those boundaries. Don't worry, we got you. Amy gives us actionable advice on handling situations when others disregard your boundaries, tips for advocating for your children and enforcing consequences when those limits are crossed. Without further delay, let's warmly welcome the masterful speaker and empowerment advocate, Amy Green-Smith, to the Root & Rise podcast. Fair warning, though, there might be a bit of colorful language, so if you have little ones nearby, it's earbud time for this episode. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Now we're going to get into boundaries. Ooh. One thing that I loved about the application that you sent in, you just one sentence powerfully say no. I would mm -hmm. love for you to dive into that. That is a topic that I don't feel gets enough attention. I mean, we all hear no is just a complete sentence, but to powerfully say no and to be able to stand behind it and say it with your whole chest, I would love to hear how to do that and not be meek or already undoing your no and just your delivery. This is such a great question and not to be an already dead horse, but this comes back again to emotional intelligence because most of the time, the reason why we compulsively say yes to shit we don't want to do is because of a false sense of guilt. Guilt is the emotional message of this is my responsibility to clean up whether or not I've done something wrong, right? Like that's what we're feeling. So I think the real concept behind guilt is the way, the way that it's an appropriate way to describe what you're feeling is when you've done something unbefitting of you and you aren't happy with how you showed up. Guilt is to, again, be like, hey, bitch, you made a mess, go clean that up. There, this is a this is a red flag telling you like, hey, you could have said that differently. You could have been kinder, you could, whatever. But far more often than not, we ascribe the word guilt to things that we 
are at zero fault with. How many times have you found somebody who like can't come to your birthday party or can't help you move or can't bake cupcakes for the kids fucking class or something like that? And they say, but I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. It's like, you've done nothing wrong. So we need to pick, first of all, a new descriptor. So the next time you hear yourself say, I feel so guilty or I feel so bad and you've done nothing wrong according to you, let's start saying, I feel concern. I feel empathy. I feel compassion. I feel a sense of obligation. I feel overwhelmed, right? I feel uncomfortable. Taking at least the scenario and not making it yours to remedy. Because so often when we are asked to do something and the implication is yes is the only right answer, usually the subsequent emotion is what we call guilt. That's not guilt unless you've done something wrong. So if you're a practitioner and you don't have space in your calendar to fit in another client, you should not feel guilty or bad. You can feel compassion. You can feel empathy. You can feel concern. But guilt assumes all the responsibility on your behalf. That's not the case. So one of my favorite, favorite things to do when you have said no to something is to check yourself and go, have I done anything wrong according to me? Because I've had plenty of situations where someone else thought I was doing something wrong, Mm -hmm. but not on my own barometer, not my own compass. I'm not. So I'm going to allow that to be the other person's responsibility. So I think to hold that. (laughs) Yes. That's not mine to carry. And I think one of the ways we do this, one of the ways we take the emotion of guilt and then we dovetail it into people pleasing behavior. And so it sounds like I feel so guilty that I can't help you move that now my people pleasing comes across as over explanation. So I have to give you a really fucking good reason. It can't just be that I can't take on one more thing or that I need some downtime or that I haven't washed my hair in five days. Like I need something separate. We think, oh, I I won Beyonce tickets or my grandmother's dying or like, right? Like we feel like it has to be some noble explanation of why we have to say no. Here's the hack. If somebody says, can you do this? The first thing to do is to buy yourself some time. So again, if you can say, you know what? I need to get back to you. How soon do you need to know? Or I need to run, I need to check my calendar. There's a chance that that won't be a possibility. When do you need an answer, right? Try to prolong it as much as you can. Or can you hold that thought for a second? I'm going to run to the bathroom, Mm. right? Like if anything you can do to buy yourself some time, or I'm right in the middle of a project, give me 20 minutes. I'm going to think about that and then I'll get back to you. Or I would hate to commit and then have to pull out. So give me 24 hours and I'll get back to you. Like taking back the reins to the yes or the no. And then you get to decide, is this something that I do want to do or or don't? Like, and it's going to be a different answer every time. Mm -hmm. If they demand an answer right away, like, I'm so sorry, but I have to know now. Then you say, got it. Okay. If you have to know now, I'm going to have to politely decline. And I truly hope you can understand. That's it. It's their conundrum. It's like a not my circus, not my monkeys thing. We can still be compassionate of like, wow, that really is difficult that what you're going through. I would love to come through for you, but I just can't, right? If you are vulnerable with that person, if you're emotionally connected enough where they kind of know what's going on with you, you can try vulnerability as a tool in your no by saying, hey, listen, there's nothing that I would rather do than hang out with you. Trust me. I'll be honest. I am barely staying afloat. I feel like if I add 
one more thing, I seriously might have a breakdown. So for my own mental health, I have to say no. As much as that pains me, I truly hope you can understand, right? If you have a vulnerable relationship, right? Then all, all vulnerability really is, is talking about how you're feeling. So mm -hmm. if you can express that in a way that feels safe to you, that can be a really great tool. It's very hard to discount that as opposed to like, can't you just cancel those plans? <laughs> you know what I mean? The yeah. logical or uh, logistic type stuff is easier to challenge. Emotions aren't as easy to challenge. So being able to and have some time again to analyze the situation and decide if a yes is what you really want. And then to also know that when we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. So if it's yes to helping them, that might mean no to intimacy with my partner, or that might mean no to time with my kids or no to rest and downtime and white space, which we all need. So giving yourself that little checks and balances. You don't have to say yes. And in a pinch, one of my favorites is what would a middle-aged cishet white man do? Or just be like, it's not going to work. No emojis. No, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Or no explanation. No, just fucking not available. And that helps me take up the space with my no powerfully that other that. people are doing without any qualms. What do you do when other people don't respect your boundaries? So this is the one that I think everyone's going to hate the most. <laughs> so brace yourself. I have sort of a three-prong approach to boundary setting. And it's a bit more of a meta view. And then the more granular pieces are a lot more tactical ways of actually expressing that. But the three steps are decide, deliver, and enforce. And I want to pay close attention here to the enforcement. So we've decided on the boundary. We've delivered the boundary. We've actually talked to that person and said, here's what I'm requesting. Then we get to enforcement. So this is so maddening because oftentimes, especially if you're used to always taking care of everybody else first, actually boundarying up and speaking up and asking for something feels like an act of God. Like, oh, I did it. I did it. I'm done. Checked it off the list. Well, the problem is most of the time that other person is used to the version of you who doesn't behave that way. So sometimes it's malicious, like where they're like, I'm just not going to, I'm not doing that. And sometimes it's just virtue of, oh, Brian doesn't mean it. Amy doesn't mean it. Or like, Oh, she'll, she'll get over that really quick. It's, it's, it's not always a direct, I'm going to just stomp all over your boundaries out of malice. It's usually not the case. But what that means is whenever we deliver that boundary, we need to be ready to circle back and enforce the boundary. So what that sounds like is saying, Hey, I know we talked about that issue last week and I'm hoping that I came across clear, but if I didn't, I really want to want to underline what a big deal that is for me. So again, my request is that you do not bring up anything related to diet culture, what I'm eating, fat grams, morality of food, like getting really, really specific. I'm just using an example. I don't want that in my home and I don't want my children to be raised with any sort of diet culture. You don't have to agree at all, but I do ask that you respect that while you're in our home. They breach it again. Your kid comes home. They've been talking about, oh, that kid in your class is too fat, whatever, something horrible. So they come home. You hear that the boundary has been breached again. You now get to decide for First of all, what's going to be the consequence and how many times am I going to repeat this boundary till I institute the consequence? That has to be decided.
decided on. And you cannot waffle on that because you will speak volumes with your behavior that people will go, oh, she doesn't, she really didn't mean it. You know, now we're back to normal. She didn't say anything about it ever again. I guess she got over it. I'm sure if it was that big of a deal, she would say something again. Like that's sort of the rationale on the other side, going back and then delivering something like I've asked you repeatedly not to mention this specific topic. And I know that you don't share that same opinion and that is completely okay. What's not okay is for you to walk over that boundary that I've established for my children and my household. That being said, if it does happen again, which I'm truly hoping it doesn't because it doesn't have to, that will mean that we will look for alternatives for babysitters, or that will mean that the only time the children come to visit is when we're all there together. I don't prefer this, but I don't feel like I'm really being left with much of a choice here. Right. And so, and then you actually have to fucking do it. You have to follow through on the consequence. If you tell your adult child that they have to be out of the house by a specific date, you have to be ready for it to be that specific date. And none of this stuff is easy because again, emotions come into play and we feel awful or we're abandoning or we're this or that, or I'm demanding too much. or I feel guilty. We have to assess that and go, am I doing anything wrong according to me? And if I say yes to this person, what am I inevitably saying no to? You're saying no to your own value system, how you want to raise your children. And you're also saying yes to being respected. So I think all of those things have to be really present when you're, when you're analyzing, do I say yes? Do I say no? What happens if they don't follow through? What happens if they breach the boundary? And it becomes about enforcement of the consequences. That goes back to how important giving yourself that time, even just stepping into the bathroom to get five minutes to say, okay, what does this really look like for me? And what am I really committing to? Because it's not just a simple yes or no. Like you said, you've, you've shown all of the different layers to it and all of the different ways that it impacts you and all of the different parts of you that need to be honored along the way. Yeah, completely. So if we're looking in that same scenario, let's say it is about diet culture and you don't want your children to deal with what we deal with, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're at that moment where your child comes home and you find out that your in-laws did in fact talk to them about something related to that. In that moment, you're furious. You're fucking furious. So that is not the time to go have that phone call. Mm -hmm. This is the time for space. This is the time to acknowledge I have every right to be this upset. And I'm always responsible for what I do with that emotion. So that means I expel and have anger releases, emotional releases in a myriad of ways. And then I ask for the time to talk with my in-laws. I say, hey, listen, there's been some stuff going on, you know, that I would really love to, to run by you. When do you have some time? And then you go and you reinstate your boundary. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's really uncomfortable because it's the place where we have to decide if push comes to shove, am I going to choose you or am I going to choose me? Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose me. Yeah. And you should. Yeah. <laughs> that was a perfect example too. I see that very situation in the community a lot. In-laws pushing boundaries and I've been fortunate. My in-laws are very great. So I don't have that issue, but that was a perfect example. What role do you think self-worth plays in setting boundaries and maintaining those boundaries. It's so interesting because self-worth is that thing that really determines a majority of our life. It determines if we think that we're deserving of a raise, if we have the courage to move to another state or country. It's if we are deserving of receiving love inside of any type of relationship. If we believe we're capable of starting our own business. Self-worth is, in my opinion, the nucleus of 
all things related to growth. And I think what people don't realize is when I'm going off about boundaries or speaking up for yourself or even the formulas of boundaries, it's not for some arbitrary personal development exercise. It's because every time you choose to silence yourself in front of an offensive comment or a friend who's hurt your feelings or an overbearing in-law, you are sending a subconscious message to your own mind that your wants, needs, and opinions simply don't matter as much as the other person. And then that becomes cyclical. It becomes this cycle that we live into. So if we are perpetually crying making everyone else more important than us, that means that we are less than, that we are not worthy, that we are not enough. So no wonder we don't believe we can start that business. No wonder we don't think that we can get the promotion. No wonder we don't think you deserve that love or that proposal. So when I'm talking to you about this, it's not just some bullshit exercise. It's because your self-worth quite literally depends on it. So when when you are taking these really courageous steps to ask for a conversation with somebody or to deliver a hard line, no, those steps that you're taking are amplifying your self-worth. You are reinforcing that notion that I deserve a voice. I deserve to be heard. My wants, needs, and opinions matter. And where it becomes really sticky is when someone else has a very different view about what you should be doing. And, you know, I had a situation many years ago, you know, I've mentioned my relationship with my mom and she would routinely invite me to different religious uh, events and, and things like that. And so me declining those things. Yeah, she does think I'm doing something wrong. She does think I should be living a completely different life. So when I speak up with her, it's me saying, I deserve to take up just as much spiritual space as you. I value my spirituality as much as I value yours and more. So there's so much enoughness happening in that. There's so much worthiness happening in that. And so what I have said to her is, hey, listen, I can imagine that having children that don't subscribe to the faith traditions that you raise them with has to be unbelievably painful. And again, I can feel compassion for her, not guilt. I've done nothing wrong according to Amy, but I can feel compassion for her plight. That has to be difficult. So here's what I can tell you. I can tell you, promise you that if my feelings ever change, you will be the absolute first person to know. But my request of you is please do not invite me to any religious themed events. And again, I will honor my promise of if anything changes, you'll be the first to know. So being really clear about what's my responsibility, what's not, being clear that my self-worth honors my voice, my spirituality, my body, all of that stuff is tethered together. So we cannot necessarily operate with these things in a vacuum of like, oh, there's people pleasing and there's speaking up and then there's self-worth. No, they're all enmeshed because if you are super anchored in your worthiness, super anchored in your confidence and believe in yourself, you don't carry the responsibility for how somebody else feels about something. You can empathize. You can be concerned for them. The point is not to become 
callous and uncaring. The point is to become very clear around what's yours to carry and what is not. And there's a lot of confusing messages around that, but that helps you take up a little more space of like, no, they don't have to agree. I don't, we don't have to fight for rightness. We have to fight for respect. So in my opinion, I don't feel like blood is thicker than water. I don't believe family above everything. I think that's incredibly harmful for people who are in abusive households. What I do think is respect is thicker than water. So it doesn't matter to me any other alliance we have, familial or otherwise, if you don't have a respect for the choices that I'm making and I can't respect yours, then there's no use for us to be in relationship. But I do think it's possible to disagree and still respect. I completely agree. I have run into that situation too with family members and having to cut them off for lack of respect for my body, my choices, my life. And it's much better that way. And it's yes, okay it too. just because their family doesn't mean that they need to be in your life or that you deserve to take their disrespect. You definitely do not blood and any link to family does not exempt you from that. That's right. That's right. Oh, I love that. What a great point to bring up. I'm curious what kind of practices or routines or rituals you have to really cultivate self-worth or anchor you, yourself in it. Cause it sounds like you have it cultivated. You're just really anchoring yourself in what you already have, which is a beautiful perspective to have. Yeah. So it's much, much easier now. And there, there are a couple of things and I sort of have a four prong approach of changing belief systems. And this is the work that I do, you know, in the world and with my signature program, which is called worthy. And because I'm a hypnotherapist as well, I talk a lot about the subconscious faculty of the mind. So if we're talking about changing our belief of not enough to, I am enough, or I am worthy, or I do matter, whatever your vernacular is, we have to look at both what am I doing consciously? What am I saying to myself in my conscious world? What are the subconscious messages that I might need to shift or dismantle or change, which is what we do a lot with our program and the uh, in the hypnosis elements that are added in there. And then we, so those are the internal components to shifting that belief. Then we have external elements that everybody can tackle right now. And the external elements to culti- cultivating self-worth are around your behavior and your environment. So we can take a quick inventory right now around all the people in my environment. Are they ears that can hear me? Are they people who can champion championing my best self? Are they people who are not speaking my biggest fears back to me? Are they people who want to see me grow, who are who are able to call me out of my shit in a kind and compassionate way? So we have to start ex- analyzing, does my environment foster yeah, this woman believes in herself. She has these friendships that are always gassing her up. She's got this marriage that's really healthy. Like we have to start looking around and going, what relationships, what environments am I entertaining that are actually threatening or thwarting my self-worth? So, and we can tackle that there before we can tackle it from any four of these entry points. You don't have to start one place. I say, throw everything at it, like go into every area that you can. And then behaviorally, we can watch. If, uh, you know, we were talking about the like body image stuff or diet culture, that sort of thing, a behavior that you could do is make sure that all your social media feeds are curated with fat bodies or disabled bodies or people who are um, fat activists or, you know, talking about reclaiming that word and seeing different bodies depicted in your in your newsfeed. That's a great behavioral thing that you can choose right now to help you with your specific self-worth issue. 
listeners can grab a free copy of your ebook or your audiobook. Stand up for yourself without being a dick. Love that name. Nine cool. proven challenges to radically improve your self-confidence and self-worth. One of the tools that you can get in this workbook, which is what I really wanted people to do is get into action, like actually do something with the information that you're receiving. So there are, like I said, nine of them, but one of them is something that we didn't get to talk about a ton today, but I do a lot in my, in my program is around inventory of your self-talk, finding what am I saying to myself and when, when is it triggered? Is it largely around parenting? Is it largely around body image, and then tapping into what I like to call self-talk or self-sentiment, because there are some folks out there who actually hear literal words in their head. Thoughts come across like a phrase, like words. There are some other people that their thoughts don't come across as literal words. So they have more of an essence sentiment or a belief, but it's not necessarily verbiage. And then there are other people who have sort of a medley of both. So noticing what is the sentiment I have about myself around this specific trigger. And then we go into a second piece that's around creating mantras in a really powerful way. And I use a, a term called progressive language, where instead, when we're creating these affirmations or these reframes, we're not going from A to Z by saying, okay, I am enough, which feels like a boldface lie and you don't stick with, but to say something else that's progressive, like I'm exploring a new relationship with worthiness, or I'm open to changing my view about my self-worth, something like that, where we're moving towards something. And it, what we need to do is create something just palatable for your mind to attach to that. It's not the inner critic is not going to kick it back so much that you throw in the towel. We're looking at like an A to B or an A to C rather than Z. So you can pick that up, go to amygreensmith.com. You'll see it right there on the front page. You can find me over there and really anywhere on social under the handle. Hey, Amy Greensmith. Perfect. I will have all of that linked in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here with us, Amy. I have learned so much. I know my listeners have. This is going to be broken up into multiple parts. And I already want you back. So oh, yay. thank you very much for your time, your energy, and all of your wisdom. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And you are most welcome. Thank you for tuning into the Root and Rise podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review if you're feeling extra generous today. Seeing those always makes my day. And remember, there's a link in the description for you to fill out if you want to join in on the conversation. I'll see you in the next episode.